That's great. If you've got leave that part of the Bible open, if you've got uh, if you're in Youth Church, the Year Six to Year Eight program, your 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 time begins now. Uh, for the rest of us, please uh, please pray with me as we begin to look at this passage. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its again its clarity, uh, how it underlines what is critical of critical importance for us. And Father, we pray that we'd listen to you well today and honour you in response. Amen. Now. <coughs> This is quite a few years ago as well when uh, my son Ethan, who's in the crowd, who doesn't know I'm even saying this, so I'll have to, there's a $5 fine when I do that in our household, so yeah, $5 fine. Uh, years ago when Ethan was a much smaller boy, I went for a run, and, and um, I was a faster runner then, and he was a slower bike rider then, and so I would run and he would ride his bike and we'd talk at the same time, and it was pretty close to Christmas time and we are going for a run, and I was asking him, um, and he'd ask him, if you were God, Ethan, if you were God, and you had all that power, and you decided to come down to earth. I mean, how would you do it? How would you come? How would you arrive? And Ethan said to me, Dad, I'd come down. I'd come down on an airplane, Dad. That'd be cool. And I said, an airplane. You know, Ethan, with all that power, why not come down like a superhero? You know, with flying through the skies, muscles ripping through that kind of skin-tight suit bolts of lightning coming from your hands, going around the world so everyone can see you. That would be awesome. And Ethan just said to me, Dad, the airplane would be cool. <laughs> but it is, uh, I, I introduce, I start with that because it's just interesting to ponder that if you did have all that power and you decided to come to the earth you'd made, then how would you do it? What entrance would you make? How would you decide to arrive? The way God chose to do it, at one level we are all familiar with because of Christmas. But it, it, does, it is a shock, isn't it, the way he does it. It really is not what you would expect, the way in which God actually came. And one of the things we're going to do as we look at uh, Luke chapter 2 today is actually see, see that moment. But what I want you to see is just really how all human it was. Uh, look, at, look at how Luke starts this. Look at chapter 2 verse 1. Chapter 2 verse 1. Uh, and yeah, they won't come on, there's only the ones that aren't in the passage, Persan, I'll tell you when the, the ones that come up. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. So th th this whole interesting, it starts in the core of a Roman Empire, in the days of the great emperor Caesar Augustus. In the days we're told of a, a lesser-known governor named uh, Quirinius. But they are real people in real time at a real place and a very real census was taken, which I want to highlight is just a very human thing to do, counting people. Now we're somewhat familiar with censuses. We have a census like here in Australia. But it's worth asking yourself the question, well, why would the Roman Empire want to have a census? Why would they want to count people? In our country, when we count people, and we do it every four years, the reason we do it is we, we want to know where people live. Uh, we want to know how many people live in each location. We need to allocate resources. as a, Our governments need to provide resources to various places. And so having data about where people live, but more than that about the, you know, what, what they believe, what their housework is, or how much, you know, where they live, what their working hours are like. There's all sorts of data you've got to fill in that, goes into helping the country run and make decisions that need to be made. And at that level, it feels innocent enough. 
But let me tell you, the census that Caesar Augustus took was not like that. And it was a very unpopular measure to take the census because it wasn't like our census. It was really a census taken to establish and then police a taxation system. And you might be thinking, well, what's wrong with that, Pete? I mean, no one... I can understand why it's unpopular. Who likes paying tax? But it's a necessary thing in our world if we're going to have hospitals and, and roads and infrastructure. But I want you to get a feel for this tax and what it was really like back then. And to get a feel for it, just for a moment, say, some other country. It's an interesting thing to contemplate on Anzac Day, but contemplate that some other country came in and took control of Australia, defeated our armies, took control of the country. And once they'd taken control, they took a census because they wanted you and they wanted your name recorded and they wanted your details and they want to know how much money is in your bank account because they want to take from you a serious tax. Not so that they can provide hospitals and roads for you to drive on, but so that they could fleece you of your money to take back to the Roman Empire. Not money to be used for the good of you and your people, but to be used for the good of them and their people and their country. That is the circumstances of this census. They're actually quite ugly circumstances, really. They're the kind of circumstances, when you ponder it, that bring out riots. And you could easily have a right because of this. Civil unrest. It's that kind of moment. That kind of hostile moment. A very human moment, absolutely. Very greedy human moment, but a very hostile one. And Luke tells us that in these highly charged days, everybody was forced to go to their hometown to register. Not everyone wanted to go, but the Roman Empire was fairly strong. The emperor was powerful, and whether you liked it or not, they weren't to be messed with. And so everybody goes to their hometown to register, and so Joseph, we're told, and Mary, who are currently living in the town of Nazareth, near Galilee, way up north, they make the journey on foot, 130 k's south, to the hometown to the hometown of, uh, of Joseph and Mary, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, we're told, because Joseph belonged to the house and the line of David. And Luke tells us, look at verse 5, that he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now Bethlehem, now we, we often know about this town, don't we, because of the, um, the Christmas time, but Bethlehem is a small town, little, just a small town, about 5 k's away from the capital city, Jerusalem. But it is a little town, as you may well know, which had a remarkable claim to fame. And its claim to fame was that a thousand years earlier, back when Israel was an empire, back when they weren't oppressed, but when they were a free nation, when they were at their greatest moment, they had their greatest king. And his name was David, King David. And David's town was Bethlehem. And it's not just remarkable, really, because it's David's hometown. It's also remarkable because of a prophecy made about it in Micah chapter 5. A prophecy which many of our Bible study groups would have noticed this week. It, it, this one will come on the screen, Prasanna. 
Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, when Micah's talking about the future, he says, But you, Bethlehem, the passage, you, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come, well, out of you, uh, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times. The, the prophecy here is that Micah is saying, sometime in the future, God is going to send a king, a great king. He gets called the Messiah. Every Jew knew that. From this prophecy, the Messiah was going to be born, it says there, in Bethlehem. Such is the claim, the fame of this town. But what, what I want you to notice, is, as, as all this kind of coalesces in this, in this chapter, is that um, just how it was it came to be that Mary and Joseph ended up in Bethlehem at the right time. Because as you read, I, I, I don't think what happened was that Joseph got his, oh, he's got his Bible out and grabbed out Micah chapter 5 verse 2 and read, you know, the, the Messiah is going to be, the, the king is going to be born in Bethlehem. And it's not like they then remembered, him and Mary remembered what the angel Gabriel said and said, we've got to get down there, we're about due. It's not like, it's not like Joseph and Mary go, or Joseph goes, hey Mary, you're about nine months pregnant now, we'd better saddle up the donkey and go down to Bethlehem because that's where the baby's got to be born. That's not, that's not what's happening. What actually happened was that God laid it in the heart of an emperor, a pagan emperor, to run an empire-wide, worldwide census at that time for his own greedy reasons. And as a result, everyone was required to go to their hometowns and say, well, although it's an awkward time for a nine-month-year-old lady, a nine-month pregnant woman to be travelling, they have to travel. And so the baby isn't born in Nazareth where they're living, but in... Bethlehem. You're meant to be seeing that God moved heaven and earth and a Roman emperor to make sure Jesus is born in this little town. It's all there to make sure that you go, don't miss this. Don't miss the significance of the moment. And when the moment of the birth happens, it's amazing how with just the bare simplicity with which Luke tells us the, the details. Look at what he says in verse 6. Here's all you get. He just says, While they were there, the time for the, came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to the firstborn son. That's it. That's all you get. He then adds, She wrapped him in cloths. Uh, he adds, He wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in, for them in the inn. And um, it couldn't be described more simply, could it? It's all over in just a couple of sentences. It's amazing that from what we get in a couple of sentences from Luke gets kind of massaged out into kind of books and books and books and Christmas time where kids, uh, there's books for kids about all the kind of things that happened that could have happened, but that is just speculation because all we get is these two lines. And in fact, while we're here, I think this is worth doing, while we're here, because of all that kind of speculation and all the kind of imaginative details that have come up, uh, it's worth actually tidying up one of them for you. There's a number of them. We're going to tidy up one of them for you um, that, that about Jesus and his birth and how it happened. And to help you see this, to help you kind of get what's going on, I want you to imagine that you're alive at the time, that you're alive at the time and uh, your hometown was Bethlehem and you had a house, you actually lived there, that you had a home there. And uh, because everyone's got to go to their hometown, you know, all the long-lost relatives who've moved away, they're all slowly drifting back into town because everyone's got to be counted. And, um, 
And while you're there in your home, you get a knock at the door and uh, a man with his nine-month pregnant fiancée knocks on the door, a long-lost relative maybe. They're about to have a baby any day and they're coming and they're asking you, gee, have you got somewhere where we could stay? Now, I want you to imagine, well, if you're imagining you own that house and there's lots of people arriving, there's a sense where you've got a fairly full house because of the extended families there at census time. But as Mary and Joseph ask you to stay in the house, would you say to them, nah, I've got no room here? Would you, would you really say that? I don't think any of us would say that. We might say it's tight, but gee, we'll make some room. I think we'd say that even if it was here in Australia, let alone kind of Middle Eastern Jewish culture 2,000 years ago where family ties are so much stronger. I, I don't think there's any chance they'd say no. But you're probably thinking right now, ah, but Mary and Joseph, Pete, they didn't go to some family member. They went to the inn. They knocked on the inn. And the innkeeper said no. But I kind of want to say, is that really the case of what's going on here? If the key verse is verse 7, if you've got it in front of you, where... Um, where it says um, there was no room for them in the inn, or as the translation that Millie read for us had, there was no room in the guest room. And that's the, the, the actual varying translations there show you there's an issue, which I think it can be resolved quite easily. Uh, because what's happening in that verse is that the word there that is translated in, in verse 7, is actually the precisely same word that Luke will use straight uh, later on in his gospel, much later on in chapter 22 in verse 11 which I don't have for some. But in chapter 22, verse 11, it's that moment where Jesus sends his disciples to go and prepare an upper room in which they are going to celebrate the Last Supper. And as he sends them away, he says, you'll meet a man and you tell the man that your guest room is needed. Not your inn is needed. Your upper room, your guest room. That, that, is, that is actually what the word means. And so it seems to me that I don't think it was an inn that Mary and Joseph turned up to. They knocked at the door and the man who answered said, oh, we have no room in the guest room. Why would they have no room in the guest room? Because relatives are coming from all over the place, right? Probably granny and grandpa got the, upper, they got, the, got the guest room in the upper room. It's probably already full. No surprise that it's already full. But like a lot of houses at that time, there was a fairly substantial room, often at the lower level of the house, a fairly substantial room where you could actually house some animals in the wintertime because they might, well, it gets so cold in the Middle East that you can lose your animals. They wouldn't have flocks of thousands. Maybe the household animals might be lesser, but they would have a room where, you could, where animals could, could uh, be safe inside, in, inside a, a, a walled room so that they could not you know, die out in the, in the cold. And I think it's what Luke is, that room is free. We know that room's free because where are the shepherds at this time of year in the story of Luke? We know they're out in the fields watching the sheep at night. It's not wintertime, right? It, it, the, they don't need the animals inside. And so they're out in the fields watching the, so the, ins the animal room that where you have them in the winter is free. 
It's not the most, you know, luxurious accommodation. No one really usually stays there and sleeps there. But when there's so much people hanging around, because it's census time, it's available. And I take it that's where Mary has the baby. Which is why we get told she's able to place him in a manger. Because there's no room for them in the guest room, but there is room for them in the kind of lower room. And, well... It's the place for the animals. That's why an animal feeding trough is there. That's what a manger is. And it's relatively clean because the animals aren't using it. And so this is where I take it. Jesus is born and where they placed him. But again, as I highlight that, I just want you to notice how, how human it is, how human it is. It's in Bethlehem, a small town. If you were there at the time, sure, the circumstances are slightly unusual. The manger business is a bit funny, a bit odd. But not, not much is really made of it in the passage here. So yes, yeah, slightly unusual circumstances, but if you were there and you witnessed the events, it was a birth that, to the naked eye, would have appeared to just been an ordinary human birth. But it was certainly more than an ordinary human birth, wasn't it? And we know that because we, even if we're short on some details of the birth story here, we're not short on the significance, the details of the significance of the birth. And to show us that, Luke takes us away from the scene there in that guest room, or not in that lower room, to, to out in the fields, to the shepherds in the fields at night. Um, now the shepherds, I, I want you to again notice just how human all this is, isn't it? So, so shepherding was a fairly normal thing back then. They, they were, they're, they're likely, I think, to be hired hands rather than the owners. But shepherds were fairly low people, fairly poor people, fairly ordinary people, nothing spectacular about them. Part of their job, obviously, was look after the sheep at night. Uh, in all likelihood, what you would do at that point is you'd ha a number of shepherds who probably had a number of flocks, uh, a flock each, would probably band together and put all the sheep in a, in a, in a contained space, easier to protect. There's more of them to protect them and easier to protect a bigger flock. And of course, if you were to stay up all night, far better to do it as a team and take turns. And so in all likelihood, out there in the fields, there's a number of them together, protecting the animals from the wild beasts, protecting the flocks, taking their turns, taking their watch at night. That's an ordinary night for them. But it wasn't ordinary for long because look at verse 8. Verse 8, And there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Because out of the ordinary now, an angel does appear. It's important. I mean, we, we see this regularly, that the Bible is unashamed about the whole idea that angels exist and are real. Here's one of those moments. They're not common in human experience. In the whole Bible, really only a handful of people experience seeing and talking to an angel. So the Bible's not suggesting for a moment that you should expect to see an angel yourself. But it, it does maintain that angels are real. And well, the most important thing about angels is the messages they bring because the word angel, if you remember last week, simply means messenger. It's an ordinary word at one level. And, it, and on this night, this angel, this messenger, had a message from God himself and his message was, look at verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the messiah or christ the lord this will be a sign to you you will find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger i always find it funny that the first words the angels say so often say to people is don't be afraid um, 
it seems like whenever anyone says to you, don't be afraid, you always know there is a reason to be afraid. And that is the case here. These angels come and, uh, and the people who meet them are genuinely scared. And so often that first word is don't be afraid. The, the, the shepherds here are like that. Last week, Zechariah, when he first saw the angel, we're told he was gripped with fear. And I keep thinking, man, if just seeing an angel is enough to scare the living daylights out of you, imagine fronting up to, to God himself with your sins unforgiven. But this angel comes and says to shepherds, don't be afraid. And the reason you don't have to be afraid is because I bring news, and it's good news, of great joy, he says, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. It's an interesting detail that the angel doesn't say, today in Bethlehem, a child has been born. He actually says, today in the, da- in the town of David. I, I think he's telling the shepherds, you know how a King David was born there many years ago? Another king. Another king has come. And I reckon if you were those, those uh, shepherds that night and you heard that a king has come and he's being born and a saviour has been born to you, says, someone who's going to come and rescue you, I wonder if as a, as, the, um, as a shepherd, your mind would have raced straight away to that census. And you would have thought, a king to rescue us while we live under, misery, under the misery of the Roman Empire? someone to come to come and that empire that's taken away our freedom and our dignity and our money that harshly rules and dominates us a savior has come man that's good news but if you were the shepherds and you were listening carefully and if you thought that was good the angels say more because they say he says this baby's born he's he's the christ he's christ or the messiah as the passage reads it's, it's that word for the anointed one it's, a, it's telling us, in some of it might sound odd to us, but it's a loaded phrase from the Old Testament saying, in the, in the Old Testament, the prophets had promised for centuries that God would send a king. God had sent many kings, right? But he said, there's one king coming, a child who's going to be described as the anointed one. And he's not just going to be another king. He'll be the king of kings. He'll be the, the king of all, the, he will rule all things for all time. And, and the angel says, he's that one. And if that wasn't good news enough, he says, he is Christ the Lord. And the shepherds ought to be going, wow, this takes us to another dimension all the time because in the Bible, over and over again, God is the one who is called the Lord. A king is coming and he's Christ, he's the Lord. That's big news. News I don't think that is difficult to comprehend. But it's difficult to take in that something that significant is happening. And so I'm not quite sure how the angels, res- uh, sorry, the, the, the shepherds responded. I mean, did they just go, oh man, this is awesome, fantastic, how good is this? Or did they go, man, is this a dream? <laughs> Someone here, am I dreaming here? Is this real? Or were they thinking, oh man, that sounds great, but it's just too fanciful to be true? I don't know how they responded. But because the news was so big and so important and, and therefore certainly not easy to believe, they are graciously given a sign to help them in their unbelief. And it's an interesting sign because it's not a spectacular sign. It's not a miraculous sign. They are just simply told, go to Bethlehem and there you will find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. 
there is nothing particularly miraculous about it. The only odd thing in it is that a baby would be lying in a manger. It's odd because, as I said before, a manger is you know, an animal feeding trough where they eat. And so if I try and uh, get you to feel the, get a feel for this sign, um, uh, it'd be like if we imagined June Eve to be kind of Bethlehem, because Wog is Jerusalem. That's it. If June Eve's Bethlehem, right? And you're, um, you're in the fields, you know, uh, halfway between here and, and June Eve. And the angels come and they say, oh, go into June Eve. And there, there you will find a house with a newborn in it, wrapped in blankets, and it'll be lying in a dog kennel. It's, it's that kind of sign. It's nothing spectacular or amazing, but it would just be odd, wouldn't it, to go and find a house with a newborn in blankets in a dog kennel. It's odd enough that if they went to Bethlehem and they saw the baby wrapped in cloths in a manger, the only conclusion you could come to is this, what the angels said had got to be true. It's not miraculous. It's just so odd. That's the sign they get. And I reckon if you were the shepherds that night, even if it wasn't your, you know, even if you were meant to be asleep and it was someone else's watch tonight, man, you'd be awake. And you wouldn't be interested in taking any more time off that night. Particularly given what happens next, because in verse 13, look at verse 13. Once I get this news, it says, Suddenly a, company, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to, uh, to those on whom his favor rests. You see, in this moment, suddenly a great army of angels appeared. Not just one, but, but a whole army, the whole, a host of army, it says here. Because the truth was, on this night, given the size of this news and the joy of this news, you just couldn't keep heaven quiet. And they just bust open and break out into song and they're saying, man, glory to God. Praise be to, our, praise be to God. Now, in the absolute highest places because, man, what a God He is. What a glorious God He is. So glorious that on earth there is to be peace to mankind. With the birth of this child, saying, the, the angels are singing, it just means that the favor of God is resting on humankind. Peace will come to humankind because of the birth of this child. It's just, and they just bust out in a song like that. I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but that, that kind of song didn't happen when you were born. You know, whatever hospital or home you were born in, the angels didn't turn up to sing for you. But what I love about the angels and when they burst in the song is that there is another moment where the hallelujah chorus kind of rings out that Luke points us to. Not at your birth kind of when you were birthed as a as a human but actually when people get born again luke actually says in luke 15 this one is there um persona luke in luke 15 it's that moment where jesus is telling the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the prodigal son in the midst of that jesus actually says he says in the same way i tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of god over one sinner who repents that is, uh, you know, the word repent means when you change your mind. That is when someone changes their mind about Jesus, stops ignoring him or rejecting him and starts to trust and follow him. When that happens, Luke says, the angels, man, they break out in the song again. And it is interesting, isn't it, that these angels, they burst out in the song. There's much rejoicing in heaven at the birth of the Savior, absolutely. But there is 
much rejoicing in heaven when someone gets saved and born again. This is what the angels celebrate. You know, in our country, if Brisbane ends up winning the bid for the 2032 Olympics, I tell you, there'll be much celebrating in this country. But that won't even kind of make the news in heaven. But one person who turns to Jesus and follows him, man, the angels in heaven are popping out the champagne. No, just the hallelujah chorus there is. Now, with this kind of no ordinary night for the shepherds now, and with news like this, they've got to just go and check it out. So they do. They go to Bethlehem to check it out for themselves. And as we, as you read, you know that when they arrive, it's, it's, it's just as the angel has said. This is real. It's happening before their eyes. In Bethlehem, there is the birth of a child that brings the possibility of peace for, the hum- for human beings. That, that has arrived. And, and because that's happened... Just like the angels can't, you know, they, 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 they've got to actually start rejoicing. They, the, sh- the shepherds are the same. Look at verse 17. We, we read that when they had seen him, ah, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed and, and, uh, at what the shepherds said to them. Can you feel the joy in this passage? It says the angels can't keep their joy to themselves. The shepherds, they can't keep their joy to themselves. They've just got to go out and tell people. When something this big and this joyful happens, you cannot keep the news to yourself. You cannot live in this world as if the Lord, the the King Christ the Lord has arrived. So full of joy that that they tell people. Which kind of makes me want to kind of come to the, we're getting to the end of the, of the talk now, but to, to try and then, I want to capture that for you and so, or get you to reflect on your own joy. Because I can't help but read this passage and just see that it's just brimming and overflowing with joy. And I reckon it's worth contemplating your own life, particularly if you're here and if there was, if you're someone who's here and you have started to follow Jesus, you are a follower of his. How is joy in your life going? The, the Apostle Peter, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, and this will be on the screen here, Prasanna, 1 Peter chapter 1, he talks about joy and, and talks about it like this. He talks about us knowing Jesus and he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and joyous joy and a glorious joy. Peter, the Apostle Peter is saying, the joy of Jesus' arrival, more than that, the joy of his death and resurrection for us and his salvation of us, that is so joyful that at times you cannot just you cannot put it into words. It's inexpressible joy, he says. A joy so deep and so profound that it should affect your soul for eternity. But I'm guessing, looking at you here this morning and, 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 and knowing this in myself, it is a joy that this side of heaven, for those of us who are born again, it's a joy that can be suppressed. Hopefully not deliberately, but accidentally or ignorantly. Sometimes the gospel joy we ought to have in our life can be suppressed. And what I want to do as we come to a close is I want you uh, to think with you about our own lives and joy in our own lives and just be aware of some ways in which we can self-sabotage the joy of our lives.
because sometimes the lack of joy in our life is life is as a direct result of some of the decisions that we make and so to help me be concrete in this and not just airy fairy i i did i wanted to get some help from uh, there's a there's a christian psychologist that some of you might be aware of he's an american he's written quite a number of books his name is arch heart archibald heart he's written a number of books he's an expert in this in this kind of area uh, one of the books he's written is a book called thrilled to death Sounds exciting, doesn't it? Uh, he's, he's, but it's a book that, um, the, sub, the, sub, the sub-point of it is how the endless pursuit of pleasure is leaving us numb and actually sucking the joy out of our life. And in his book, he points to some, um, some joy boosters. It's funny what language that he uses. But what he actually does in his book is he actually goes, um, I just want to lean on some research that people have done. Lots of, lots of psychologists have done lots of research. And not necessarily Christian psychologists. Some of these research has been done by people who well and truly have their Bible shut. But they're contemplating the whole topic of joy and what can boost joy in your life. And what's fascinating, what Arch Hart pulls out, and what I just find fascinating, is, is that as they've done this research and the things they point to are so consistent, actually, with a biblical worldview. They actually point that the Bible actually makes sense of the world we live in, and there are things that can sabotage your joy or things that can boost your joy, and it's worth being aware of. So I'm going to walk you through some of the things, well, 1 to 12, I'll do them quickly. There are 12 things that can be 12 boosters to joy in your life. What were they? One, the first one was, one, intentionally do something selfless for another person each day. If you do that, it will boost your joy. And I keep thinking... Isn't Jesus the one who came to seek and save the lost? Isn't Jesus the one who said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve? You want to boost joy in your life? Do something selfless for someone else. And I want to say to the researchers, don't just limit to one person. (laughs) Do it for lots. Two was, he said, allow yourself to make mistakes. That'll That'll help boost your joy. Allow yourself to make mistakes. And I keep thinking, yeah, that's... That sounds, that's, that's the gospel of grace, isn't it? Salvation by grace. I make mistakes. Three was give up expecting others to be perfect. Funny how that one helps joy, doesn't it? Give up expecting others to be perfect. I think it's a proper understanding of humanity and the doctrine of sin and applying grace to others that will help your ongoing joy. Four, he said, when offended and wronged, forgive the offender as soon as possible. Yeah, that's right. Jesus said, forgive as you have been forgiven, as Christ forgave you. And, I mean, you read the first four and you go, these are people who are saying this and they've got their Bible shut. But I kind of feel like it's just so consistent with the Christian worldview, isn't it? Just, just, it's just confirming what the Bible has been saying, really, for centuries. But as I say that, do you notice how you can sabotage joy in your life, though? If you're not forgiving others, holding on to bitterness not allowing others to make mistakes or even yourself to make mistakes and not even forgiving yourself, giving up on serving others and reducing that in your life. So such easy things to fall into that will sabotage gospel joy in your life. Five, well, you said try and keep your life simple. Don't overcomplicate your life. And I I just think of Jesus saying, here's your agenda. Seek first the kingdom of God, full stop. Simple, keep it simple, he said. Uh, six was he said get enough sleep um, um, it, it's actually i think aligning the truth that god has given us mortal bodies physical bodies 
and they're a great gift from God, but they are very limited and they are very finite and they need rest. And a lack of rest can lead to a lack of joy. Arch Heart recommends you get nine hours of sleep a night and I think who can ever possibly call that out? I can't. But anyway, I just say that so you, there you go. Get enough sleep. Uh, seven was spend as much time as you can with loved ones. That not spending time with loved ones will suck joy out of your life. Yeah, that's right. Don't forsake meeting with one another as some are in the habit of doing. Hebrews 12. That church on Sunday, your Bible study groups, your ministry teams, your blood family, yes, your church family, absolutely. Spend time with them. Here's one that kind of came, I would thought the, the, uh, would have come from left field for the re- some of the researchers. It says, number eight, was spend 20 minutes per day on quiet reflection. That's what, you know, if you want to boost joy and happiness in your life, spend 20 minutes a day on quiet reflection. How are your Bible reading and prayer life going? Um, don't rob yourself of the joy of the Lord by having so many distractions in your life that you forego just spending a little bit of time, just 20 minutes a day. Quiet on reflection. I find it fascinating in this passage that when it talks of Mary, as Luke gets to the end of the passage, it will speak of Mary having heard of all these things. It said, how she pondered these things in her heart in verse 19. The word pondered there is that sense of mulling over, reflecting on what was said and pondering it and mulling over it. Well, it's, 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 in, it's an important part of life. Mary did it. it, it I, I want to say to you, you know, turn off the TV at times, turn off the Netflix. Certainly, um, if you're addicted to Facebook, make sure you, you know, turn that off and be still and know that you have a wonderful Savior. And if you don't do that, you are self-sabotaging the joy of the gospel in your life. Uh, nine was, um, before you go to sleep at night, make a list of things that are on your mind. I take it he say, say that to get it off your mind, but I want to add to that going, and then pray. Cast your, all your cares on God. Uh, ten was, again, before you get to sleep, list five things that you're grateful for, and that's right, the Bible says be thankful in all things. Eleven was about doing creative tasks, and I think it's picking up that idea that we are image bearers and we are workers, and as a result, setting goals and achieving them, you can enjoy the benefits of that. Twelve was um, a funny one, don't, don't put off you know, getting a life, is what he said. He was uh, picking up that idea that you don't want to accumulate, you know, 500 days of annual leave and never use any. You know, get a life. You've missed the point. Rest is important. And they were the 12 heroes. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. Not an Anzac Day saviour. Those men and no doubt women who lost their lives to provide a freedom and stability in our country. There's a sense I wonder if they're rolling in their graves thinking, man, we've tried to save the world, we've fought the war to end all wars. There's There's always another war. The world doesn't stay saved. We need a saviour who will bring a permanent peace. A saviour that won't just release us from political oppression, and I want to say, and won't just forgive us our sins, but who will usher in a new creation that will stay saved. Ah, today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born.
his cross live. Such joy, which is why we're going to sing joy to the world. So please stand and we'll sing that song together.